2: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's Thursday, so uh, my co-host is here You've seen her a lot this week on TV. I've seen her a lot this week on TV. Dr. (laughs) Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, practicing physician, formerly of the Obama White House. How are you today, Kavita?
1: Good, thank you. I'm excited about today's conversations will no doubt be depressing, but exciting nonetheless.
2: Depressing and exciting is what we aim for every week. We're really pleased to be joined uh, this week by Katie Barlow, who is both an attorney and a journalist. Both of you make me feel uh, like I've wasted my life, given all the things that the two of you do. She's a media editor for SCOTUS blog. She's the host of Words Matter podcast, which we recommend highly. Welcome, Katie. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. So we'll talk a little bit about some Supreme Court issues in a moment. But I thought, given that I've got both of you here and uh, Katie, you're a trained attorney and Kavita, you're a trained doctor. You could do some therapy for me, because we've entered what I, as a Democrat, might call the Democrat zone of these hearings on January 6th. Steve Bannon and a bunch of of the people who have been subpoenaed have essentially thumbed their noses at the Congress, and the responses of the January 6th Commission have been. I don't know, Katie, you're a lawyer, so you may think they're appropriately lawyerly. But to me, they sound like a parent going, I'm going to count to three, you know, one, two, two, two and a half. Because, you know, now the the last we heard was, well, we're really angry that Steve Bannon has told us to go jump in a lake. So we're going to have a discussion about a meeting, about a, you know, recommendation. But of course, we don't take any action. We're going to have to pass it on to the Justice Department. And it seems just you know, like here we are in the land of no consequences. But Katie, you're an attorney, so perhaps you, you feel they're handling it perfectly and I'm just a hothead.
0: Well, I've certainly never known Congress to be uh, particularly focused on appropriately acting lawyerly. That's not something I would necessarily pin on them. And I don't think that's the end goal of The investigation. I think it's a lot of it is political. You know, the evidentiary rules are not at play here, except for when it comes to talking about this particular privilege that the Biden administration has made the decision to waive. I think the ultimate question for me, and and it's a very interesting one that people much smarter than me discuss and know more about, is who owns the privilege over that information? Is it the office, the individual? Are they meshed in some way, depending on who's in it at the time? And how does that play out? And I think. We're going to get an answer in the next few weeks of, of how that truly plays out, because technically it is the office of the presidency, just like, um, you know, the lawyers in the White House serve the office of the presidency, not the president. And the privilege goes with the office, not the not the man so far, just man. So if the man changes his mind, does the privilege just stick to the office regardless of what the individual says or is it dictated by the office holder at the time? I think that's an interesting question.
2: Uh, it is an interesting question. Of course, Steve Bannon didn't work for the White House. Yeah, that one I still don't president. get. I don't I mean, know. How does, how does how does he claim there. executive privileges? Involved?
0: I have in. no idea whatsoever how he gets any claim. None.
2: Kavita, you know, you're a medical professional and obviously yeah. this is a mental problem. I have. They're
1: all mentally ill. Yeah, that's what I was just going to preview. Yes, I'm,
2: a, I'm mentally ill
1: or they're mentally ill. They are probably we are, too, David, let's be honest. But yeah. but they they are definitely mental. Steve Bannon is definitely mentally ill. How yeah, <laughs> that much I there's, feel. There's confident no question. To, no question, question about that. But I I definitely. Katie, I'm just curious because uh, I wanted you to just kind of comment there's been, and I think it was on Just Security, one of our former co-hosts, Ryan Goodman, didn't write this, but I'm sure would probably agree that now is it maybe the time to brush off the second volume of uh, what uh, Robert Mueller did with the kind of investigation into possible obstruction by Trump as president. And so I'm actually curious, I'm not trying to deflect this off Steve Bannon or January 6th, but I feel like these are related. And I would say that having refreshed my own memory of what was in that volume and how little was done, obviously, by Barr then, no surprise. Do you as a legal expert kind of see maybe more kind of traction for that and some pressure on Merrick Garland to do anything? Or is that really just dust is on that? We've got plenty of other things to to deal with. I was just curious.
0: Yeah, I think that is probably a closed book at this point. I yes. don't foresee. I, I think it's political fodder. And I, and that's what a lot of this is at the moment. There's not much substance being done. Yeah. It's a lot of political fodder and keeping the momentum going in the discussion about January 6th. I don't think going back in time and focusing on that is going to be productive. I do think it is productive to continue to talk about January 6th. And I think that there is a real risk. Uh, in the political conversation that we're having right now, that that momentum will get lost and January 6th will become like the Mueller investigation, Mm -hmm. you know, a closed book with dust on it where nothing gets done. And I'm putting aside the Mueller investigation separately because that was uh, an investigation that was done by, you know, an independent counsel. And there were different procedural rules and and things involved in that, including um, uh, prosecutors looking at With experience as a prosecutor looking at the types of evidence they could bring in in a court of law in a unique situation with the president of the United States. January 6th is it they aren't bound by those rules. They don't have to decide what is admissible if they would be bringing a charge against the president of the United States for the very first time in a way that is not often brought in criminal cases. You know, none of those issues are here. All of those were present during the Mueller investigation. And so. There's an opportunity to keep the momentum going, but it's getting drowned in all of the political back and forth.
2: So let me ask you a follow up question that will help us drift towards uh, extended conversation on the Supreme Court. Part of the strategy, it seems, of the January 6th organizers and Trumpists generally is if we throw it into a court, it's ultimately going to get to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is now a political organization, and they're going to bend over backwards to interpret things in a way that um, might benefit the former president. This is, hasn't always worked out the way the, president, the former president wants, but there's some worrisome signs on the horizon, Katie, that being overtly political is, is now baked into the DNA of this 6-3 court. Do you think this is a strategy that's likely to be successful for these folks?
0: I don't. I mean, I think that is that is just so far down the line. And it's, of course, an easy grab in the in the political conversation we're having right now that, you know, of course, they're going to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is 6-3 conservative, so they're definitely going to side with X. The Supreme Court is highly deferential to executive authority, depending on the case. And there is such a thing as the political question doctrine, um, which, you know, who knows what the case would look like on how that comes up to the Supreme Court. But there are several ways in which the court could choose to sidestep what would be yet another hot potato issue that they might not want in their lap.
2: Okay, so Kavita, your favorite Supreme Court justice, Stephen Breyer, that (laughs) said...
1: You, I thought today. you were going to go with my real favorite justice, Sotomayor. But OK, no, no. Go ahead.
2: We, we may get to her later. But Stephen Sotomayor said today, now is not the time to turn on the court. You know, let's trust the court. This sounds a little bit like Dianne Feinstein, uh, you know, on the filibuster. What do you think about this?
1: Honestly, I mean, what else could he say? I guess, you know, I have a soft spot for Stephen Breyer, too. I think he's incredibly smart. But maybe not smart enough to also read the room of what he's saying because they don't have to. But I do think that that there's nothing else he could say. It's just like I do, however, kind of quibble on the same. I, I forget when Alito kind of said like shadow docket. This is just like media conspiracies and like not really. There actually is like kind of evidence. And Katie, you correct me if I'm wrong of kind of times when a shadow docket was used in this in the Trump administration. Times when it was used in other courts etc. and so i i don't know where he gets the kind of support to say what he's did but i can't i can't blame Breyer for saying that cuz what else could he say like if if he were to shake the faith in something like the supreme court i mean
2: wow we we think our democracy is screwed just looking at no, congress no, no i think that he and and feinstein are both enjoying the 1990s they they just but what would you
1: what, what would you want him to say i i don't think he can well, I don't I think know. He,
2: your your favorite Supreme Court justice, Tanya Sotomayor, is a little bit more outspoken. Yes, true. But her.
1: she hasn't gone as far to say, I don't have faith in this court. Right. She's no, said, She
2: says she says things like the court's not following stare decisis anymore. The court's not mm-hmm. handling things. the way She's been pretty, pretty direct on that. Pretty but critical. Katie, sure. Katie, Katie, Kavita brings up one of the developments of the past week that I found most interesting and most troubling. And that is my least favorite Supreme Court justice, and this is a podcast, so I'm allowed to. You can, you don't have to have a least favorite justice, but Samuel Alito sort of took out a, you know, a hit on Adam Serwer of The Atlantic, you know, and he made a big speech and he said, you know, people criticizing us this way, you know, it's a sort of journalistic jihad and so forth. And Serwer struck back at him. What did you think of Alito's? Remarks?
0: I actually had a flight booked to South Bend the day before because, as you know, that was going to be a closed event. There was going to be no live streaming. Mm -hmm. uh, And I found it important enough to book Mm -hmm. myself on a flight on my own to go to cover the speech uh, because it's the first time that a justice spoke about what he called the emergency docket, what a lot of us call the shadow docket. And I found uh, his mention of individuals. In that speech troubling because I'm not sure that the justices quite appreciate the impact that it has when they name individuals who do not have the protection of the marshals or secret service. And so I I found that particularly troubling, but I do think on the other hand, I think what Justice Alito did once he live streamed the argument, I, I mean, the, uh, the argument, and there you go. It was a 10 point reputation He was making an argument. I think that was helpful. I think there should still be a video of it. But I think the fact that a justice was talking about the shadow docket in public is what is the that's what should happen. Because if for all of us who are mm-hmm. navel gazing and on Twitter people were able to respond in real time. Even the individuals he called out, like Steve Vladek, were able to respond in real time to actually clarify, nope, the point he just made is not the one that I was making. Here, let me explain where I'm coming from. And so it contributed to this broader conversation that we're having about the shadow docket, about the emergency docket, about the court. So I think the fact that he did it and the fact that it was live streamed was good. I think going after individual members of the press is hugely problematic. I'm a big fan of Always punch up, never punch down, and and he certainly called out individuals that I think just makes it incredibly difficult for them. and And as far as his actual critique, I also don't think all of them were entirely fair. He criticized uh, the media, which I'm not sure he quite characterized the media correctly. There are There's the broader media who you know provide commentary, who have opinions about the court. Uh, but and then there are academics who do research and dive into the numbers and, and make proposals and put out academic papers on it. And then there are, there's the court journalists. There's the court the you know, the core and the, a little bit broader group of those of us who follow the court's work and who report on the court's work that are not classified as the same, you know, media commentary personalities. And so I think conflating all of those together and saying that anything that they're saying is not serious, anything the media says is not a serious critique is unhelpful because some of the things that uh, the journalists who cover the court are saying about transparency, about access are serious critiques and I believe are valid. I've written about them and I I agree with a number of them.
2: Well, it's also a democracy, right? We've uh, the, the public has the right to comment on anything the court does. The court serves the people, not the other way around.
0: Right. He was simply uh, he wasn't saying that they shouldn't. He was saying that they were not serious criticisms,
2: I believe is well, what, he, what right. he called them. What he was doing was he was dismissing the right. criticism of one of his bosses. But let's leave that aside for a moment. Kavita, we're, we're at a very. Curious moment in the life of American justice, and particularly in the life of the court. We're waiting this afternoon for the first readout from Presidential Commission looking at the future of the court. Uh, we actually
0: I... just got it, Is it uh, out? I briefly oh, looked down uh, while, while you're talking and... and... <laughs> double task at the same time, but it literally just posted uh, and it's over 200 pages, it looks
2: like. Why don't you read the 200 pages in the next 30 seconds? Yeah, Katie. And and, 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 I'm
0: suddenly back in law school again. (laughs) Exactly.
2: (laughs) Exactly. And I'm going to ask Kavita a transitional question here. I saw you this week commenting on the Texas abortion case. And I think we're at a point where people are expecting in the course of the year ahead, the Supreme Court to be a little bit more political on things like abortion and guns and voter rights and so forth. Not that they haven't been in the past 20 years, but more so. Do you think the issue of public trust in the justice system and this incorporates, of course, DOJ not acting on things like the Mueller report and January 6th, is that a high for your professional life and your time in D.C.?
1: (laughs) I I can tell you that this might be one of the first times. And by the way, I think Adam Serwer did a beautiful job kind of giving his like, quote, reaction to kind of Alito's speech there in, in the Atlantic piece that he wrote. I forget something that he said. He said he was like a GOP Trump like kind of candidate in his moment. And I think that correlates highly with the low trust scores. What would they call it? The net promoter score that people have consumer confidence with Congress. It's incredibly low. Healthcare actually, it's usually low in a time of COVID. We we eke out a little higher than Congress. I had never thought the Supreme Court would kind of get to some of those lows, but in some of the polling recently, it's achieved those lows, not just from one or two or three sets of actions. It's been something that I've seen kind of after Kavanaugh, after Justice Barrett. And it just gets back to, you know, when Justice Breyer says, you know, just trust us, have faith, faith in the court. I don't know if the public can look at an institution anymore and have that blind faith. I want them to, I want people like Katie who are smart legal scholars to kind of frame why it is that America should have trust in the nine and why this is something that even despite very overt kind of political commentary by a justice and also by Justice Sotomayor. I mean, I don't think she's hiding how she feels, but despite that, that there's trust in the institution, And I don't have it. And we talked about it last week on the pod, David. I mean, Karen Finney basically said, like, this is it. We're going to see all of these rights dismantled. And then we're going to see Congress kind of either step up or not. And I don't think they will. And I'm very viscerally troubled and also desperate to understand how. I'm curious, Katie, like we look like we've locked in a generation of this kind of kind of action in the court, the six three phenomenon. I could be wrong, but. What is the future for not just this decade, next decade? I mean, I'm looking at 2020, 2030. Doesn't feel like we're going to change. I'm I'm seeing a very disturbing trend and I want Katie to make me feel a little bit better. And I'm worried that this report she's going to read in 10 seconds isn't going to make me feel better.
2: <laughs> well, yeah. Well, first of all, Katie, you don't know this, but every week uh, when we do this podcast, yeah. Avita begins by saying, she positive. wants to feel better at the beginning. And by the end, she always feels worse. I do. So you're under But no I am particular.
1: smarter, but I am smarter for it. So I, yeah. I'm you're, always you're, smarter you're, for
2: you're, the podcast. You're under no particular obligation. And, and Kavita, you have left out, of course, Jenny Thomas. Yes. The wife of a Supreme Court justice who helped fund January 6th. Tell us, Katie, what have you gleaned from the 200 pages in the past 60 seconds?
0: So I've looked at the the two things that I'm most interested in, which are their feedback on membership and size of the court, which mm-hmm. um, you know some people call court packing, adding numbers to the to the court, and term limits. And they've got 30 pages on term limits, 46 pages on the membership and size of the court. And they open pretty early on the membership and size of the court with kind of a history of related events. And it starts with the Celia vacancy, which I think. Vita is is perhaps contributory to how you were feeling, but they mm-hmm. um, are obviously breaking it down. What it seems to be, um, and this is actually what Justice Breyer has been saying in speeches, is he's not opposed to term limits, uh, mm-hmm. and it says that there there seems to be at least widespread across the aisle support for the idea of term limits. Um, so that seems to be where the conversation is going. I haven't delved deeply into the to any of it the membership and size of, of the court, I think, is less of a realistic conversation. I, it does seem as though term limits is a more realistic conversation. But then the question becomes, how do you do it? And they delve right. into this briefly because it's either a constitutional amendment or by statute. Uh, there's a discussion of how they would do it through a constitutional amendment. Uh, and it appears that the, the commission members are divided on whether it can be done by statute. And that is also reflective um, in the academics and the folks that I have read about it. So I think we understand this report to be. Here's the entire conversation from 36 smart people gathering all of the testimony that we can for more smart people who are closely aligned with the court and hear all the arguments on both sides Biden White House. Here you go.
2: Sounds to me like the special you'd get at Waffle House which is covered say, a, lot and of, a lot of waffles.
1: <laughs> a lot I mean, of waffles, yes.
2: <laughs> you know, you have a commission and the commission has two possible approaches, right? One is to thoughtfully lay out all the options and mm-hmm. say, we're not going to make any hard decisions, which seems like where this has gone. Uh, the other is to say, this is a tough decision and, you know, we lean in this direction. I would add, though, that anybody who suggests that we ought to do something that requires a constitutional amendment also, you know, might suggest that we ought to open new family housing on Mars, because there's not going to be a constitutional amendment in the foreseeable future. Isn't that right?
0: I think that's right. I mean, I, it's certainly a far cry from, the, you know, the nature of the conversation that we've seen uh, in Washington and around the country right now you know, folks can't. I'm actually covering on the local level. I also am a reporter in D.C. for a local news channel, and I'm covering the bipartisan commissions that have been selected to draw the new map uh, in Virginia and Maryland. And they can't even agree on a map to start on disagreeing on. Um, And this is it's a very local level, very basic level, bipartisan groups of people who volunteered their time to spend hours and hours talking about maps. And at the end of hours and hours, they cannot come to an agreement on, on where to even start. And so I think that's a uh, micro reflective of, of the broader issue, which is we're, we're certainly not going to come together to, to have a constitutional amendment, much less maybe even a Congress that could could pass anything relevant to that's what I, Kate, Katie, we can't get a statute through. I don't think we can do any right. of these things. Well, I mean, it, it is a project that mm-hmm. conservatives and Republicans have been focused on and working on for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that similar fervor has been reflected on the left hand side of the aisle. So, um, you know, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg always said, quoting her husband, Marty, the pendulum always swings. The question is, are we mid-swing right now?
2: Is this a meaningful conversation? Or is this an exercise in working through our frustration? If real change is not possible by a constitutional change, and, and frankly, I don't think it would happen unless it was preceded by a constitutional change in the way we elected members of the Senate, um, which currently is a body that represents or overrepresents the views of a minority of Americans by virtue of constitution, then this is kind of public displays of emotion that don't lead anywhere.
0: Well, I have two thoughts on that, uh, and they are divergent. The first thought is, I would say the exact same about the January sixth discussion that we were having earlier? Is that a meaningful conversation or is this whole process just a way for the country to express its emotions, process what happened on January 6th and move on? But the divergent thought that I have is something that I experienced in my very narrow world, discussing the court on a social media platform with young people Mm -hmm. and The country is at least more aware and informed of what the United States Supreme Court does and how they do it than they were 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years ago. And I think it is meaningful that the country understands the third branch and, in particular, the heads of the third branch, because that matters when they go. It might be 15, 20, 30 years, Kavita, to your point, but that that matters when they go to the polls and the way that the right has been able to champion certain issues and make them emblematic of voting for who you want based on who they're going to put on the court. I think now shedding light on the court, the power that it has, the role that it has, the process for getting members onto the court and how political that is, and then how much we still don't know. We don't get to see them do their work with a camera in the courtroom. We don't get all of their financial disclosures. They aren't required to, by statute or by any other requirement, to recuse themselves from cases where they might have Involvement, you know, all of these things people don't necessarily know, but it is meaningful that we are talking about it um, and it might not lead to an actual reform measure through statute because that's going to require a lot more people voting. But it is meaningful that the country is learning more about it because they it just wasn't a huge part of the of the conversation. You were around at a time maybe when I wasn't, and, and perhaps it was, but uh, I think it is meaningful that the country's learning about it and that, that we're growing in our understanding of the court and how much we know and how much we don't know.
2: I don't know what she means by I was around it at a time think, she yeah. wasn't.
1: It
0: was well, before. I, always, like, I before, could be wrong. Before electricity, David. We talked about the <laughs>
1: sure. court. Before um, Tommy's Edison, when you were before, a little
2: boy. Certainly, yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's certainly,
0: I I mean, there have been times in the arc of American history where the court has been critically important, but we didn't talk about the court's process and rules and how they did things in the same way, at least from my reading of the history book.
1: Katie, that's so I've talked to young people and they do, it is interesting. I'm actually just curious kind of your, sounds like that's actually almost a hopeful kind of note that even though we might not be able to pass something by statute, who knows what would happen just that level of scrutiny takes it up a notch. And to your point, kind of left of the aisle, you're right. I've always been a little fascinated. Like, why is it that I'm not hearing more of an outcry from progressives about some of these distinctive to me seems obvious. I can't practice without disclosing conflicts or having a lot of what I do in private be very public. And I never quite understood why justices I just want to say one thing
2: here, which reflects my Age, which Katie has brought into this in a very painful, personal way for me, but um, uh, you know, we talk about how the the left hasn't been, you know, engaged in this. But it was actually your former boss, Kavita.
1: It was Ted Kennedy. Yes, I know. Yes,
2: who torpedoed the candidacy of Robert Bork in a way that set us on this path. So it's not that the the, the, the Democrats have exactly.
1: Yeah, Not there just hasn't been a lot of people who followed. I mean, he got a lot. I mean, as you know, like that was something I mean, I wasn't working for him at the time. But one of the things he would recount kind of in his final years was how little that that was carried through. And he was pretty disgusted by it. And he was talking about Democratic senators and Judiciary Committee members. But that little was, a, it
2: was carried through by Democrats.
1: Yeah, correct. By by some of his colleagues on judiciary at the time, one of whom was joe biden by the way so anyway it's just it's a it's an interesting you're right he was one of the few and also slowly you know especially in the 90s or early 2000s was kind of alone in that david at least from my that's when i worked for him
2: so what is the end of the republic here katie inertia or institutionalists
0: that's a great question i wish i knew the answer i certainly don't (laughs) Given the nature of what I cover in my daily life, I would imagine the institutionalists, and that would be my bias showing.
2: I would you agree. Talk, talk talk about that. You've been so even tempered here. Do the institutionalists are they frustrating you at the moment?
0: They are frustrating me to the extent that protection of the institution and and that the it, the institution is stuck in its ways, it's preventing an evolution. It's adapting to modern times. And mm-hmm. I can put that another way. There should be cameras in the courtroom. We should have a drop-down menu on the Supreme Court's website where we can mm-hmm. click to view the justice's financial disclosures. So that part of the institution and the need to protect the institution and keep it the way that it's going is bothersome to me as a member of the press who covers them. So that comes with my own bias there, too. But I think that the institution itself is valuable. Um, But it can only go so far. You know, they can make a ruling and they have no one to enforce it. So if President Trump were in office and the Supreme Court ruled do X and Y, which that happened a few times, but said, you know, you can't claim executive privilege here. He could be a president to echo those in the past who have said, let them enforce it. So maintaining that trust in the institution that Justice Breyer has spoken about, um, that Justice Sotomayor has talked about being disappointed in in the coming years is is important. But.
2: Well, you know, no, I think you bring up a really good point, and I think one of the points here is we focus on the Supreme Court because we always focus on the top of the food chain, the biggest names. But the reality is that the American justice system doesn't work unless the Supreme Court and all the courts and the mm-hmm. Department of Justice and the Senate all share a common commitment. And if anybody wants to sort of take us off the track towards justice or, or respect for the Constitution um, or accountability, any of those three, they can do it. And that's- Yeah, that's- and I,
0: I totally agree with you. And another reason why I your words have been so even keeled, I think is how you put it, is because I think a journalist job right now is to keep shedding light on the justice system not just the top nine. Um, Mm -hmm. One of my earlier endeavors, I founded a news website exclusively covering the DC circuit because so much comes out of that court. And a lot of it is really boring to a lot of folks, but explaining it to people and having them understand how the rest of the justice system works. And we're seeing it right now play out in Texas, you know, where a lower court, a district court judge pauses the abortion law. Two days later, a circuit court undoes the pause just for a minute to see if they're going to permanently do the pause before it gets up to the Supreme Court. Having folks understand the power and how it works is incredibly important. And it's a lot of journalists are doing that work right now. But it's just a constant need for education as we continue to and as the courts continue to play a more important role when we're dealing with things like these emergency injunctions that were in large part really ramped up during the Trump administration.
1: We've had times recently where justices, especially in the Obama administration, you, you recall how many open spots there were and just the stall that occurred. It does feel like Biden is making decent traction. Correct me if I'm wrong. Do you see some hopefulness for unfortunately we do have some some circuits that especially is it seven? I'm gonna now I'm gonna show my own ignorance about which ones are kind of stacked and have pretty young, pretty young just, justices that are not going to move. But Are you hopeful watching some of the Biden appointees? And they do seem to be, even though they're stuck in uh, nominations, at least it seems like the White House and others are still trying to put some pressure to get them through.
0: Yeah, I think the fifth and the 11th are are fairly conservative, generally have a number of young individuals on them. The fifth is where we're seeing the Texas case play Mm -hmm. out, of course, Uh, but the Biden administration does seem to be keeping true to their word of prioritizing putting judges on the bench there aren't as many vacancies as there were during In the Obama. Trump administration, because I don't think it was prioritized as much during the Obama administration. So uh, they are, they do seem to be making progress. So if those are the types of judges that you're looking for, um, there's reason to be hopeful. But it's also up to the judges and individuals who choose to step down and the timing that they choose to step down, which is a conversation we've been having about Justice Breyer um, ever since Biden got elected. But it's true also for the lower court judges. Mm -hmm. And the lower court judges are the ones who write the opinions that Mm -hmm. eventually make it up to the Supreme Court. One of Alito's complaints is that they, of course, they would rather have briefing. They would rather have everything before them in a lower court record and even the lower courts dividing so they can hear both sides. And so all of that work is done by not the nine, but all of the judges that are appointed in the lower court. So it is just as important. As uh, a conversation we're having about retirement among any members of
2: the night. Excellent, excellent point. And I feel we've been very lucky to have you join us here, Katie. Uh, and hopefully you'll do it again sometime soon. I recommend everybody to listen to Katie's podcast, Words Matter, and uh, follow her work as a journalist uh, at SCOTUS blog and even uh, locally in Washington, D.C. Kavita, it is good to see you again. I don't. Judging from your face, which those listening to this as a podcast can't see. I don't know if we've cheered you up this week. It's my goal on a week to week basis. And I feel I'm failing at that goal. But, you know, we'll keep trying.
1: Katie gave me hope. I I actually think just what she said is a lot more hope than I started with. So it's a good thing. Excellent.
2: Thank Katie. Mission accomplished. Breakthrough. It's a breakthrough. (laughs) Um, Thank you very, very, very much, and folks. Uh, who are interested in hearing more from us, go to the DSR Network. You can see what we've got coming up in terms of uh, new podcasts and other kinds of new offers. And there will be plenty of those. And if you like what we're doing, click on membership. And for like the price of a latte per month, you can help support what we're doing here. We'd be grateful for that. And uh, we'll uh, be with you all again real soon with the next episode's of uh, Deep State Radio and our other podcasts. Until then, take care of yourselves. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you everybody for listening. Bye-bye.